0: This is the SFF Audio Podcast.
1: Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Scott.
2: And I'm Julie from A Good Story is Hard to Find.
1: Oh, me too. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm Paul. And I'm Russ. And Paul... Has something to sell. Uh,
3: Yes. Uh, In 2017, as part of the Down Under Fan Fund, I took a trip to Australia and New Zealand and documented my adventures in an over 200-page book of photos, stories, and what a fan fund delegate does when visiting the world the national cons of new zealand and australia and for the low low price of seven dollars you can buy this and donate to the fund and help replenish it so that future fans can can travel between australia and and north america you can visit this at my website princejustin.com p-r-i-n-c-e-j-v-s-t-i-n.com and go to the little buy link and you can get a pdf of all my adventures with with tons of excellent photos, as some of you listeners know, I am a photographer, so I, I took up the camera out at every opportunity. You can see photos of cons, waterfalls, mountains, and everything else I could spot in New Zealand and Australia. Pretty much so, all
1: of Middle Earth, too, me thinks
3: uh, Oh, yes, I did visit Hobbiton. So if you ever want to know what the Hobbiton set looks like, buy the Fan Fund Report, donate to the fund, and you can find out. Thank you.
1: This show brought to you by... Okay. (laughs) Uh, So, uh, we're reading... We had just finished reading, I guess, Red Harvest, a 1929 novel by Dashiell Hammett. Um, First published in Black Mask, was it? I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, In four parts, starting in November, finishing in February uh, 1928. Um, The paper book version came in 1929, and then there was the movie adaptation, uh, <laughs> sort of. 1961 movie. Nobody watched, or I assume <laughs> you watched all of them. No, no, you didn't watch it. Okay. The 1961, uh, movie adaptation that doesn't credit, uh, the source, which is Yojimbo, uh, Nakira Kurosawa movie. Uh, and then there was a 19, um, 64, uh, rip-off of Yojimbo, which is an excellent rip-off called A Fistful of Dollars, uh, starring Clint oh, yeah. Eastwood. And uh-huh. then I think it was 1994 or 1998, um, not as good movie, called Last Man Standing, starring Bruce Willis and a bunch of great character actors, including William Sanderson, who he's he's in uh, Blade Runner, and uh, Christopher Walken, and a whole bunch of other great character actors i think that one's directed by walter hill um so anybody watch any of these movies other than me <laughs> they're no, they're not they're strictly speaking exact- well I, I think they're faithful in some respects but uh yeah i agree I, they're not 100 percent faithful
3: i rewatched last man standing because i was in the mood for that okay um and and, and you're right is it, it faithful not really it's it's really just a yeah just uh him playing both sides and not really not really capturing any of the character of the continental op at all it's really just more like let's let's you and him fight sort of movie
1: i want to i want to talk about that because it's very interesting one of the one of the things that's going on in this book is it's a mystery kind of but it doesn't feel like much like a mystery um, it feels uh, more like history uh, retold in a rhyming fashion and oh yeah, I'm writing a mystery novel, sort of. Um, that's how I that's thought about it. But I, I want to ask Rose, since she's our expert on, on uh, the continental op, um, what is the motivation of our unnamed protagonist to well, knock over everybody in this town?
4: Well, it's actually kind of unusual. The Continental op doesn't really take, like, a personal stake in things, generally. Like, he's there to solve a murder or to do, you know, find something or whatever the case is. He doesn't really take things personally. He's, mm-hmm. like, your classic. I mean, like, he never has a name. You never find out his name. Um, so he is that kind of archetype for the character. And, um... So this, he gets, he says he gets, you know, he's going to do it to straighten up the town. He also says he does it because Poisonville doesn't treat him right. Um, But you kind of feel like it's because Poisonville, he later says that Poisonville has poisoned him.
5: Mm.
4: And you kind of feel like this is the beginning of that. He's unable to distance himself from the problems that are happening. And he winds up becoming much more involved than he ever should be.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think it, it is a, I don't know if it's a flaw, but it's a, it's definitely a question that is hanging over the whole story. Because, um, so in, if we go to compare to Dashiell Hammett's uh, Maltese Falcon, which we recently read up for the podcast, um, uh-huh. that has some motivation that is, you know, nobody knocks over my partner. I got to figure out what's going on and get... Sort of revenge, whether I like it or not, um, and he's kind of uh, playing, playing his way out from under sort of a uh, murder rap in a certain sense. Here, the Continental Ops in a lot more control than than that. He he inserts himself into the situation. So, to me, I think that this this is this is why I like watching adaptations, right? So, in the first movie, Yojimbo um uh let's it's akira kurosawa's movie who's the who's the star i'm trying to remember his excellent actor from japan you guys you, you've seen the movie right everybody at some point
3: i've seen i've seen nope.
4: the movie i saw it a long time ago wow okay yeah,
1: well i've um, never seen it um scott uh, you should watch yojimbo t- t- yeah i'm uh, definitely t- gonna watch it
3: toshiro mifune is your mifune right oh yeah is the uh, uh, ronin right. uh, yeah, Right. So,
1: yeah, he's a ronin. Um, his, his whole thing is he's a masterless samurai. He wanders into town nameless. Um, at one point he gives, he gives, when asked his name, uh, he says a Sanjuro something something. Um, and that means like mulberry field. And the reason he says that is because the window had just been opened and you can see a mulberry field, right? So he just lies to them about his name. But his motivation there is to make money. And there's also some implication that he's got a a good heart because he's reuniting a family that's been divided by uh, sort of the thugs that run the town. Um, In the the remake, sorry. Wait, wait,
2: just a second. That's actually the glass key. Mm
4: Mm-hmm. He... Kurosawa says he's that wrong. he based it on the Glass Key, he's which wrong. actually has a pretty similar plot. Yeah,
1: he's he's not he's not uh, it, it's it's close, but it's not exactly the Glass Key either, um, because it's it's about it's well.
4: Well, he doesn't claim that it was directly based on any of them. He just says that he based it on the Glass Key. Um, yeah,
5: a, a film adaptation, adaptation of the Glass Key, that I
4: well I think Wait. it's proof that it's such a common type of plot in these crime movies. like if it's not going to be you know a murder being solved, this is another common detective kind of plot.
1: Yeah. Um, but he's uh, so the the mysteries that happen within this novel are kind of really third or fourth tier to what's going on. There are a couple of mysteries, right? But none of, and they all get wrapped up, but none of them are like trying to figure out why he's doing what he's doing and why he does that. It seems to me it's all about the history of, of Dasal Hammett himself, right? That he was involved in basically something very like this. And this is sort of his fictional retelling of how he would have liked to seen it go, rather than so when he says, "I've been poisoned by Poisonville, at least this is this is what I was getting out of it. Um, so when when we get that motivation for the masterless samurai, the guy who used to be, a, you know, under the heel of uh, some other master, now he's uh, in it for himself. I think that that's kind of what's going on here because it doesn't really line up with him being like what all the reports he's not sending to his boss. Why is he not sending them? because he'd be told not to do it, right?
4: Well, yeah. I mean, the old man is, the old man in a lot of ways is the Continental Op, except at a higher level, someone who's been doing it for longer. But if he sent reports back to the old man, he would know that the old man should tell him not to because he, you know, there's a sign, uh, uh, you know, maybe not in this book, but in other Continental Op stories, that uh, he will become the old man, or the old man used to be him. So he knows, because deep down he knows... That he's personally motivated. Well, yeah, that if he was in his right mind, he would never be doing this.
2: Well, in fact, because it says that's when he has that laudanum dream, which, for one thing, gin and laudanum, who doesn't want some of that, right? I was just like, what are you doing? But when he has that dream and he comes out of it, he went into that laudanum dream because he knew he was too involved he was enjoying setting all these people up and watching all these bad yeah. people die
3: he got, got uh, personally he got he made it personal when he shouldn't have right because he tells the old man who's
2: hired him who says i want to call it off he says you're fat chief of police tried to assassinate me last night i don't like that i'm just mean enough to want to ruin him for it now i'm going to have my fun i've got ten thousand dollars of your money to play with i'm going to use it opening poisonville up from adam's apple to ankles
1: But, but, but he did he he sewed it all up before that happened right so that excuse doesn't work that excuse only works if he can tell the future and the reason he can tell the future is because he's the author, right?
4: Well, <laughs> he's, a... Wait, what? Wait, wait, wait. But He's talking about – not he's not talking about the murders. He's just talking about getting rid of the corruption in Poisonville, in which would be like the various gangsters and you know the bootlegger and the gambler and all those people.
2: Yeah, that speech happens right before he goes and starts just stirring things up like um, over the boxing match but why and did the he other do things that, that follow. Like, so
1: when he comes to town, his – He just his, said – <laughs> no, that's that's, that's after saying. he's that's after he's he's got the check certified and uh, can't, you can't no know, back backsies right. He,
4: well, but the guy is saying like you can still have the money. I don't care. Like just get out of my town because
1: the I don't remember the old guy's
4: name. Oh, Elihu. In, Elihu. Elihu. That's yeah. it. Um, Elihu doesn't want him to do this. He's going to do it anyway, not because he has any sort of obligation to. He's doing it because he wants to. He's already solved the murder he came there for. Yeah, that's
1: what I'm asking, is why what? does... Because uh, as far as I can tell, there's no reason for him to be there. He, he's... He, he's, I mean, he has no personal stake in it. Like, in the Maltese Falcon, right? The reason he's, he's trying to figure it all out is because... Gosh darn it, even if you don't like him, uh, even if you think he's kind of a horrible human being, he was my partner, and you got to revenge your partner or whatever um here his client is dead um the mystery is pretty much solved and he solved it but even before he solves it he's like no i'm gonna get my revenge on this town <laughs> which makes no sense but he, just, no says, sense if, but he well, just
2: said he doesn't like them he doesn't like that they tried to kill him he doesn't like the way they're running thing he's just gonna do it that's what that speech is i'm just mean enough to want to ruin him for it i'm gonna have my fun He's letting his inner beast out, essentially. Poisonville has poisoned
1: him. But at that point, he has already he when he gives that speech, he's already given the check to the bank, sent it off in in the mail, and right. he, it's like he knew the future that he was going to be uh, an attempted no. assassination.
4: No, no. Well, he's no. doing it for fun. He doesn't. I care. don't. He doesn't know the future. I mean, like, I of suppose he doesn't know the future my most if cynical, he's... I could say that he's doing this because Dashiell Hammett wanted it to be novel length.
5: <laughs> so, like, <laughs> yes. Yes. my
4: most cynical, I could say that. Otherwise, I'm just going to take what the character states himself as a motivation. And if he was a nobler character, he would be doing it for the good of the town. So that's, that's And he's not because he knows of the people of will come book. in and replace him when he's gone. He just wants to take his revenge out on these people that did not treat him well and he's normally treated pretty well by the in the short stories and things he's normally treated pretty well by the police he gets along with the San Francisco police and all of that he's no that's never really a problem for him
3: but yeah. this police this police force is so corrupt that yeah they they wind up turning on him because this whole because poison mill is rotten to the core I mean he was originally brought in wasn't he by the the quickly murdered Donald who he yeah. never actually admits to ostensibly the way i read it was to clean up the town he was brought in to do that and his client gets murdered he figures out who that is pretty quick and then i think in, in some ways he's still echoing back to his original purpose there although he's now added this whole personal glee of personal desire to just do it for the fun of it but i mean he is kind of fulfilling his original mandate just in a very personal and not exactly the most elegant way he's just like (laughs) let's let's have let's have the town let's let's have the town turn against each other and burn it to the ground practically it fulfills his original mandate and which is but it's not quite the way the old man wanted which is why the old man shoes him out at the end
1: so I want to point yeah, and
0: out the the Continental Ops the, the the company doesn't want him there right after right. the after the mystery's been solved
1: absolutely that's why yeah. he sews it up so that so that he has to stay right and he won't send in reports so that he doesn't get recalled right yeah um, so w- when they when they do the loose very very loose adaptations for the films Yojimbo he he's motivated both by money and by the reuniting of a family that is echoed and repeated in the uh clint eastwood version uh fistful of dollars there's a uh a young boy who wants to be reunited with his mom who's being you know pimped out to one of the the town bosses and in the third movie the motivation's even weaker um he, he they they beat up his car instead of beating up his burrow right. So uh, the the when they apparently put the film version of Fistful of Dollars on television, um, somebody said uh, somebody said okay here's the problem with this we don't he doesn't have any motivation. So they actually filmed this is really weird. They filmed with a with a, a lookalike Clint Eastwood being sentenced. To uh, and released from prison, being sentenced to clean up the town, and that's what? why he's there. Exactly. So that's crazy. It is crazy. And one of the thing that makes the Sergio Leone movie so great is he's the man with no name, even though one of the guys calls him Joe. <laughs> he's the man with no name. Um, his motivation is mysterious. He seems to be sort of the wandering sort of character that we respect, sort of that Ronin. Uh, who is above the the pettiness and the evil of the of the gangs that surround him, and this is a very very American iconic character. And I think it's just amazing that uh, when you start looking at, at why that's necessary, it's because I, I I'm I am i am focusing so much on this because I don't like it was striking to me why he doesn't leave. And why he does all these things to avoid... Like, I, I haven't read any of the other Continental Op books um, prior, so I, I wasn't 100% sure. But because the is told um, from first-person perspective, we're suddenly uh, in the territory of how reliable is this narrator? Uh, I have to think that just based on the, on the novel itself, it's, he's probably pretty reliable, except when it comes to his own motivation. He's pretty reliable. Other than that, I didn't get a sense that he was, um, like it almost read like it could have been a report, right? That this whole book was a report back, or a memoir, or something like that. But the problem is, is he says, you know, it can't be a report because he says I couldn't tell the bosses that, right? Because he would never put that in a report. So it's incredibly. Yeah, at
0: real. one point, he writes a report about um the murder he solved, right? Right. I seem to remember that.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. right. So he did write yeah. that back to them. Absolutely, he is, he's doing some communication, but he's deliberately misleading his boss in order to do this personal motivation, and it doesn't it doesn't fit with the rest of the fact that we he seems a hundred percent reliable. At least you know he's a little metaphorical, but he his descriptions of what people are doing and what's going on, it's as it's as faithful in a certain sense as, as the third person, um, not omniscient, but third person um, descriptive of the Maltese Falcon, right? We're, we're faithfully represented visually what's going on, I think.
0: So it, it, it was just I, really striking to me. I didn't, feel, I didn't me. feel fuzzy about that at all. I just felt yeah. um, that he was upset and
5: yeah, and had money.
4: Yeah, And the Continental Op has a very he has a code it's not a you know maybe a normal code but he does have a very strong code and he'll do right by people that do right by him and in this case no one did right by him and so he's not going to do right by them like he's not going to leave them alone
1: but uh, that's don't you think that that uh, i mean it was it was striking that he doesn't do right by his own company so <laughs> one of the, when, I, when I first heard of the Continental Op, I didn't understand what the, what the title meant. Well like the OP I, like what's the oh. op thing, right? Because I hadn't read the books um, and why he's called that. Well, the Continental doesn't exist, but the Pinkertons did. and right. he was a Pinkerton, the author himself. and oh. this book is motivated by a real incident. and the disgust that he has. Or had for what he was involved with, I think this is this book is a reaction to it because it doesn't fit otherwise. Like, right? At least in my I, in my guts, the fact that he's lying to his his corporation that he's working for, um, and doing so against the corporation's interests, the only reason that that could happen is because of some yeah moral thing. But the the outrages that happened to him are not. It's almost like he's he's you know trying to make his country better or something, which doesn't yeah. make a lot of sense for a for a, a small time operative to do with the with a corporation's money, because well, this they is, haven't offended him the corporation in the book.
4: Right, but I think I mean part of that is, um, you know, Dashiell Hammett later became like a communist and
5: <laughs> yes, um, he, he clearly
4: thought stuff was wrong with the country,
5: mm-hmm.
4: and I think. You know, because that also shows up in the glass key, again, of this idea of, um, you know, the government and corporations and all of these things being corrupted by crime. Um, so it was something he was very interested in. And this is, of course, I, I mean, he was involved in a strike that went extraordinarily wrong. The Yeah, sorry, the author. Well, yeah, sorry, the
1: author. Involved. When you say involved, you, you need to expand that out because it, it's...
4: Oh, yes. It, uh, he it, was present as a detective during a strike. I don't remember where. um Pute, where Montana. Yeah, where many people died. Uh, many of the strikers died.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: And he... Uh, so he would have seen all of those things. He would have seen how bad it can get. Um, and... They mentioned that Poisonville had something like that happen in the past. Yeah, the um, wallies, and that right? led to this corrupt city because the strikers lost because they brought in these criminals. That is what's poisoned Personville. Um, which I think is also interesting, the fact that it's named Poisonville or nicknamed Poisonville yeah. because poison is taking the place of person.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: So it's the people mm-hmm. that have poisoned the town, yes, which can otherwise just be anywhere USA.
1: Yeah, I, 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 it's a great metaphor, I think, and it it works incredibly well. I wanna I wanna expand just a bit what you're saying. So w- when you're saying he was involved, he doesn't. We don't explicitly get told what he did in that, at least not in the book. Uh, I mean, it's hinted at, but um, this is also well.
4: Yeah, the Continental Op was not involved in the right. strike that's
1: supposed right. to have been in poison. 100%. Yeah, right. But um, so when when Hammett is was working as a detective what that's really not what they were doing right they weren't detecting most of the times I mean it, they did do that as well but in this period and at that place they mm-hmm. were um, basically uh covertly joining the union and well, they busting were acting the union. a
2: lot as the FBI well let yeah, me they were yeah, let me busting. also just for clarification, yeah. the I mean, because most people a lot of people haven't heard of the Pinkerton agency. Mm-hmm. And it was a it was not just a detective agency, it was also a security guard exactly. agency. Yeah. So they would do things ranging from um just security like private contract work
1: or blackwater to
2: basically. like being like the FBI. So that since they were private they could get involved on one side or the other. And I think I remember reading about, yeah, Carnegie. Mm-hmm. Um, acting on behalf of Carnegie, there was this battle over uh, breaking a strike that <laughs> led to the death of seven Pickerton agents and nine steel workers. So they would get in there and get their hands dirty. So there's no telling what Hammett saw Which that was funny, being filtered through all this. Because there's
4: that line in the book about um... – the the strikers had to do their own bleeding, but Elihu didn't. And oh, of course, yeah. that in that situation, it would have been the Pinkertons who were bleeding for right. the, the corporate people, people running the.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: This stuff still goes on today. So you guys uh, remember last year there was uh, the standoff at Standing Rock? Um, yeah. That was uh, it. Was North North Dakota right? Um, that was not. Yeah. So the infiltrators. Oh,
2: that thing. Yeah, yeah. It's still For going generally. on.
1: It's just um, there was an election, and it sort of got forgotten by that. But the infiltrators uh, by by hired security guards uh, who go behind the into the protesters' lines and then shoot at the police um, as one of the to protesters, yeah, to yeah. incite and then justify the right. So that, that stuff's still going on. It's, this is like a I mean it was much more public at the time in the 1920s. So everybody pretty much who's reading this book would be aware of these sort of uh, union versus uh, magnet uh, battles. And yet, yet you rightly point out the FBI didn't really exist at that point. So if you wanted to wield the might of a mercenary force, you had to hire them yourself. Um, And that's still, you know, it's still there. It's just not as prominent anymore.
2: Yeah, and that's the part of the book that I found the least interesting, frankly, all that where he's getting in there and just fixing the town. Um, Because I know it was originally four short stories that he then put together into a novel. And you could kind of feel the tone of, you know, got the first mystery solved, the second mystery solved. Mm. And then he's like, now I'm pissed off. I'm going to shake things up. And I was just like he, you know, and he's so he's messing with the boxing match. He's giving information to various people that are going to start wars, and I was just like, I don't care about all this. And that's probably the most accurate of anything yes. based yes. on what you're all talking about, you know. Yeah. But and it's the reason I didn't care about it is it was the bloodiest and. Um, you know, there was the least for me to grab onto.
1: Right, well, I, I think the um. best part of the book is not that. I think it's the de- it's the description of what's going on when he talks about his noodle and and you know <laughs> all the body parts that that are described. Body parts are amazingly awesomely described.
5: Yeah, that's, there's some that's great slang the, in
1: it. Yeah, this is a super quotable book. The plot is, I think, a very less interesting than than the way it's written. Well, yeah, because when
2: you think of the first paragraph and you just read this and you go, Hammett, what a wordsmith. Is. <laughs> I first heard Personville called Poisonville by a red haired mucker named Huey or sorry, Hickey Dewey in the big ship in Butte. He also called his shirt a shoit. I didn't think anything of what he had done to the city's name. Later, I heard men who could still manage their R's give it the same pronunciation. I still didn't see anything in it, but the meaningless sort of humor that used to make Richard Snary the thieves' word for dictionary. A few years later, I went to Personville and learned better. And you're just like, okay, I'm in. You know, and then the way mm-hmm. he, just later on, he gives you so much information in so few words where he's like, I'm going to see what the town's like. And he says, the first policeman I saw needed a shave. The second had a couple of buttons off his shabby uniform. The third stood in the center of the city's main intersection, Broadway sorry Broadway and Union Street, directing traffic with a cigar in one corner of his mouth. After that, I stopped checking them up. He's like, that's all he needed to know.
1: Mm-hmm. By the way, you know, I'm- yeah am i want to (laughs) point out that a mucker is uh is basically a tough guy or a thug or um and in fact edgar rice burroughs wrote a novel called the mucker Uh, this is from the same period this is a um this is what happens you sort of come out of the war you may be underemployed and uh looking for work you're the guy who rides the rails to the town and you know joins the anti goon squad or the goon squad, which right. is go in there and break up uh, the the replacement workers. Um, all over the world at this time, they're like literally all over the world. The union, the world, it's the in, industrial workers of the world. The wobblies that are mentioned in this book mm-hmm. are all. Um, it's a fight between you know the the. Gilded Age owners and the uh, workers who are trying to live in it. Um, so that's the background to it, and it, it the cynicism that's so beautiful in this book it comes out of that. So we, I, I think mm-hmm. it's important to to background it there. But yeah, that's not right. the most interesting part about the book. I don't think it's it's just so a, yeah. a great question. writer.
5: Mm-hmm.
0: I've got a question on the front of my book. Um, the New York Times Book Review is quoted, and it says. An Acknowledged Literary Landmark. And um, I'm wondering, what what do you think is meant by that? Um, is this like yeah. the first of this type of book? It sounds like a you grudging know, endorsement. <laughs> a grudging <laughs> well, endorsement. No, I'm, I'm assuming that they're saying that um, there's something different about this book than, than what came before. That's what it means, right?
4: Yeah, I think, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, if anyone knows better, but... Um, as far as I know, this is the first hardboiled detective book. There was one author who was writing hardboiled detective stuff shortly before Hammett, but he was basically the one who made it big, who made it popular, um, and he wasn't far behind. Um, but the other guy was also writing stories for The Black Mask. So this may have been, and I don't know for sure, but this may have been the first full length book and the first one that may have reached more of the public.
0: So it's the thing that kind of started the hard-boiled uh, you got detective it. fiction, you got okay? It. The, and truly, and it hard was
1: 1929. Well, 1927 right? for the original serialization. 27, okay. Yeah.
2: But also but, truly hard-boiled, like we were saying with Sam Spade, where Sam Spade, we want to give Humphrey Bogart's uh, memory of the movie in our mind a bit of a softening part. Yes. But there's no softening to this. There's no. I mean, when he describes him and Dinah Brand, and you know. <laughs> uh there's nothing nice about him at all it's just he's got his code and And, when he breaks his code
3: i i just checked britannica 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 says credit for the invention of the hard-boiled fiction genre belongs to dashel hammett so okay that's that's why it's a good one landmark of uh well it's
4: actually a little bit sad for the other guy (laughs) um
3: (laughs) <laughs> because he,
4: uh, I, I don't remember his name right now, no. but because no one does. Um, but he, I think, technically wrote the first kind of hard-boiled stories, um, and then he got out of it and wound up, you know, a pauper, and mm. other people were writing it and being very wealthy. But uh, oh. yeah. but Hammett gets the credit because he's the one that stayed popular because he's got the skills.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Captain John guy. Daly, I think, is the guy you're thinking
4: yep. of. Yep. Okay, yeah, that sounds
3: yeah. right. I, um, and I and, and as I was as I was listening to this, I thought this plot seems familiar. And I remembered in the computer game board, computer and uh, PS3 game Borderlands, there's a subplot where you can get involved in basically getting two gangs to fight each other, jumping from one side yeah. and siding the other, going to the other, and then finally they go shoot each other out and basically take each other out thanks to your machinations of just cleaning up, cleaning up this section of Pandora. It's like, Oh, that was, a, that was taken from Red Harvest. Oh, <laughs> yeah. oh I it's, see where that came from. One gets. of the,
0: one of the things, uh, that I, I noticed that, uh, came from Red Harvest was the, the, uh, peace, uh, summit in the Godfather. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. I mean, when I, when I got to that chapter, I was like, Oh my gosh, that's the Godfather. You know, uh, that movie, um, yeah, they had that summit between the families to try and stop the killing and uh anyway i thought that was a pretty good chapter too in fact that's one of my favorite lines that i marked there everybody was sitting very still as if to call attention to how still they were sitting
5: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> i was like yeah i'm keeping that one <laughs> Yeah, he's, he's a
1: great smith it's true yeah. um I, if we're talking video games, I should point out uh, that's exactly the sort of thing that Fallout does as well, right? They they literally rip off um, some great thing and you say, this seems kind of familiar and, and, until you, you know, like, break it down a little bit, you don't notice it. But, um, it's funny, in 2010, Playboy, which is not well known for its gaming, actually made a massively multiplayer online role-playing game called Poisonville. And oh, you are you you pl- apparently played it in the browser and you uh, are recently out of prison and you get to join one of four gangs that run the town. And so it's like a ongoing version of this this novel's setting except there is no hero at all, right? There's no protagonist right. who's trying to pit them against each other. Um it, it, in fact, it's it, it's look was basically if you look it up, it looks pretty much like Grand Theft Auto. And if you think about the way oh. Grand Theft Auto works, it's pretty much the same thing. It's it's the reveling in the uh, in the uh, the chaos kind of in the mm-hmm. like endless murders and shootouts and all that stuff, right? Um, I I, I don't think I have played much of the story modes of of those. I can't say if that's how they play out, but it's it's super iconic. This uh, the sense that uh, once, once you start corrupting a little bit, it corrupts everything. And if you if you go to the uh, Yojimbo, right, the, the the reason they're fighting is because their their uh, their sheriff is weak. They don't call him a sheriff, um, magistrate or whatever it is. And it it's really interesting. It all ties like. The Japanese take on it, right, is that it's set in that, in, in that Western period, uh, late 19th century, uh, with sort of the decline of the old way. And when the sheriff uh, is, is weak, only a visit from like, the overarching government can, can calm things down and stop the murders and the endless cycle of violence in the town. When uh, you go to the 1964 movie, it's set in Mexico, um, and the Americans and the the Mexicans down there are in the business of gun running and rum running, right? In the uh, running across the border, selling guns to the Indians, selling alcohol to the Indians, and they're competing for that. When they do the 196, what's the one Paul watched? Um, the 1994-1998 movie *Last Man Standing*—they're all gun runners, all rum runners, right? Bringing uh, Mexican hooch into the United States, and it's the sense that, like, the if if the government isn't there and it's they're doing their job and sort of on the up and up, it's all corrupt. It's it's a very strange feeling, like. I'd have never lived in that town, but apparently that existed, that the sense of horrible corruption within every layer of government so that you you can't move or go outside or anything like that. Um, I found the city incredibly oppressive in the novel, but mm-hmm. the, the lines of, of dialogue and description coming from our protagonist are just so good that I, I didn't mind and I kind of wanted to uh, like start mapping all the streets uh, <laughs> like uh, there's Hurricane Road and right every uh, it starts off there's the mountain view and you could literally like do a map I wonder if it's just a map of Butte, Montana overlaid um, <laughs> the, uh, because it you can see sort of like and I'm surprised I looked I tried to find like a map old Dell map back to see if I could Find you know where all the gangs are located and where the meetings take place because this is exactly the sort of thing that um, those old Dell map backs would do. It, in all the other Continental Ops books that were done by Dell, they have uh, a map of you know where the events take place in San Francisco. I couldn't find one for this, but I would
3: have I, loved one.
1: It I would it would be incredibly useful just to keep track of everything, but also just. The fact that it's all there and it's all laid out. Um, you know, when he crosses the street and then <laughs> as soon as the door opens, they start shooting at him and he shoots back. <laughs> that's, that's. Um, I mean, that it's it's so well replicated in the films. Um, you know, it, they always reduce the number of gangs down to two instead of four. And they always uh, make the town a lot smaller. But it's the same idea. And that the sense that it's a real... Po- sort of living place within the book you don't get like I don't get any sense of San Francisco very well from the Maltese Falcon but I really got a sense of Poisonville
0: from this book you know yeah. I, I kind of had a different experience I, I couldn't bring my mind out of a big city in this book even well, though, it's 40,000 you know,
1: people, it's not tiny,
0: but it's, yeah, it's not tiny. I just kept, you know, my mind's eye kept showing me like New York city or something like that.
1: Right. Right.
0: Like I couldn't pull myself out of that.
1: Well, it does have, you know, I mean, it's got buildings, I think that are, you know, fairly, uh, I don't know, five or six stories, right? It's, it's, it's a yeah. mining town, but it's also uh, got a lot of people moving in and out, I think, you know, workers and such.
4: And it can support a. An amazing amount of criminal activity.
0: Yeah, that's It that seems yeah, that a was little bit over. It, it yeah. was weird to have that happen. And then, um, you know, in a chapter, he ran down to Ogden, Utah.
5: Right. You know. I,
2: thought,
3: I thought of you.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, oh, that's down the road. You know, I'm assuming, you know, wherever this town was, because they, they never actually say, right?
3: Right.
0: You know, he said, so it's somewhere in the Butte, Ogden, Idaho, Wyoming area, I yeah. guess. Yeah, it's not a and, real town, um, but it's yeah, I definitely, know it's not a real town, but they never say where it is, and it's a mining town. And um, but you know, back then, um, Ogden and Salt Lake City were big railroad hubs. So if they were going anywhere, they would have gone through Ogden to Salt Lake, and then from there to everywhere.
1: Yeah, I I, I like that. You know, it's it's almost as if you could go like he says. I'd never heard of it, right? Or i I'd heard of it. And I heard of it in Butte, which is where it basically is supposed to be, I think. Um, but Butte County and and the uh, the city, uh, right, it's the richest hill on earth is the, their motto, yeah. and the the population's about right. So, and the history is totally right. So if you look at like what downtown Butte looks like, there's you know the, those six story. Uh, Hotels, you know, that you yeah, would have yeah. if you've got a train, yeah. you know, it's got uh, the way it's lit up, right? He says they they started off uh, like they were rich, and then everything turned to yellow or gray. I,
3: I I think we should I think we should read that Go paragraph it. because it's, it. it's really it's really really good. Dash description: The city wasn't pretty. Most of its buildings had garnered the goodness. Maybe they'd been successful at first. Since then, the smelters whose brick stacks stuck up tall against a gloomy mountain to the south had yellow-smoked everything into uniform dinginess. The result was an ugly city of 40,000 people, set in an ugly notch between two ugly mountains that had been all dirtied up by mining. Spread over, this was a grimy sky that looked like it had been come out of the smelter stacks. I mean, just it's one nice paragraph. Like, that's what we need to know what the city looks like. Perfect. Right.
1: Yeah. And uh, there's a there's the hill right where the where the mountain view where the 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 boss whose son is you know it, it feels like and the old man in bed you know that that's the very Philip you can see where Philip Marlowe is getting it from too or yes the, um, uh,
2: the big sleep I the, instantly thought the, of
1: right it's uh, it's Cameron the old Greenhouse. man who's too, who's super rich uh, and that's you know who employs these detectives right it's not like the the young family with the Looking for them, it's always somebody super rich, and they got some motivation. Find the daughter, find what, whatever it is. This is you can totally see why that this is even though it feels quite different from sort of later PI novels. It's got all the elements, and especially the the dialogue and the way it's written.
4: Yeah, and I think it's I think it's amazing how modern it still feels because you know you look at um, Philip Marlowe. And he's, you know, more... He's the hero with the heart of gold. Like, he's always got more of the sense of right and wrong than Hammett's heroes ever do. And I feel like heroes like the Continental Op are, you know, more what we see today when people are trying to be edgy and hardcore and all of those things. And it's actually just, you know, a throwback to how the genre really started.
1: Mm Mm-hmm that the, the the cynicism uh, that and and the the coolness of how you deal with people and even the alcohol right uh, if yeah. when we think about <laughs> so Raymond much. Chandler's books you know every page is soaked in every kind of gin and uh, vermouth and all the all the hard liquors there's a line in here about um, the gin tasted like it'd been soaked in a corpse or somebody's <laughs> soaking yeah. in a corpse Right, um, and this was
4: still during prohibition,
1: yeah, and even even our hero has brought a bottle from San Francisco, right,
5: yeah, yeah
1: and there was a time where he was drinking unpleasant
0: whiskey,
5: right.
0: <laughs> which is another name for one of Paul's albums, right? Yes, <laughs>
5: <laughs> yeah.
4: Yeah. And so if he is, if Hammett is, you know, the father of hard-boiled fiction, that means that um, he came up kind of with the femme fatale character. And in this mm-hmm. book, that's Dinah Brand. And Dinah Brand also gets those great descriptions of Hammett's where she, he's described, or she's described in the town as, you know, she's... Uh, so attractive she's the woman everyone wants she's got this magnetism to her and the continental op never says differently but every description he have of her is awful sounding so here's uh, here's one and they, they're they recurring through every time yes. she's mentioned she always gets something like this um, her coarse hair brown needed trimming and was part parted crookedly one side of her upper lip had been rouged higher than the other her dress was of particularly unbecoming wine color and it gaped here and there down one side where she had neglected to snap the fasteners or they had popped open there was a run down the front of her left stocking and it's also recurring that she can never keep a stocking right, uh, yeah so he got to run yeah
3: your legs um, are too fat Yeah, (laughs) that's what he Uh, says. This was
4: the Dinah Brand who took her pick of Poisonville's men, according to what I've been told. So this is the best Poisonville has to offer, theoretically, in women. And she is the reason behind, um, you know, a lot of the plot stuff that happens. And one of the killings, she's the reason uh, he goes down the wrong path with another, you know, an old case that he winds up solving. Um, And she eventually gets mixed up in it in a way she never intended. Um, So it's it's interesting to have her as the femme
2: fatale when she's always described as so undesirable. That's interesting too, because I hadn't thought of her as a femme fatale at all because I've been reading all these descriptions and just going, this says something about Poisonville. But what I didn't think about is her... The fact that she'll trade size as often as she has to, all she cares about is money and she's very open about it. She's corrupted, but she's not like everybody else who's hiding it. She's just like, here's who I am. Sorry. Did you Mm -hmm. expect differently? And I never thought about that informing all these other characters. As they come along later, because you usually the femme fatale, she may double cross you, but she's got a soft spot for you, like in the Maltese Falcon. She's always on
1: about his expense account, right? Yeah. 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 How you, much you can, and do you and why it? does what uh, we, ne- we never get the explanation right from him directly, the continental op? But he he could totally write off. But yeah, it's like a principle, even though it's not yeah. even his money. Right.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right. With the $200 and 10 cents bit. That was hilarious. It's like <laughs> 10 cents.
2: <laughs> and she takes the dime. Yeah. He makes that point. Yeah. Here's the dime. She took it.
1: Here's here's a line. This is the most liked line from uh, the Goodreads quotes. You're drunk and I'm drunk. And I'm just exactly drunk enough to tell you anything you want to know. That's the kind of girl I am. <laughs> if I like a person or a poison, I guess. I'll I'll tell them anything they want to know. Just ask me. Go ahead, ask me. Um, and he does talk to her, uh, but we know right from the start that she's also she is poison, right? Because right. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does she she gives the sells the documents and the poison pill is that they they can't be used, but they do get mm-hmm. used anyways, right? Yeah, yeah. right. It's uh. And then uh, there's the the kid who who's in love with her, um, but yeah. he's only in love with her to the point that he can kill for her, not to the point where he actually loves her, <laughs> which is, <laughs> yeah. oh, man, that is she is a femme fatale. She's just not the 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 classic kind like the Walter Neff. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, even even her, though. I mean, she's no prize in Double a certain sense, she's, a, she's mm-hmm. a married, you know, middle aged woman. Who um, basically suckers him into the sense that they're going to be rich together. Right? And the yeah, movie plays it is up. Is but... just
2: like that. You're right. I hadn't thought about that because that's the surprise of the movie is that she's so consistently like Dinah, except, you know, no runs there. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Um,
1: it's, it's sort of a glamorous version of, of the
2: Well, thing. yeah, except for the fact, just to diverge for a second, is everybody complained about the barbara Stanwyck in that blonde wig and billy wilder said he put it on her to show how cheap she was and how little sense fashion sense she really had because otherwise barbara Stanwyck was just going to be too good looking mm. so it's mm. the same thing he's trying for the dinah brand uh feel
1: yeah. you know i'm a big fan of uh, james m kane uh and the way he he writes a book is super short and super hard right and and that's the thing is 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 the petty the 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 love stories that happen in them they're so petty and they're so like they're horrible human beings and they they f- somehow find each other and and when we talked about i was thinking a lot about the Maltese falcon uh in reading this because you know it's the same author right. but mm-hmm. um in that one there's a and i i'm actually mentioned that movie Ronin uh, the 1998 uh, movie starring Robert De Niro and a uh, whole bunch of you know international actors, Jean Reno, and set in France, and and they're all chasing after this MacGuffin, the suitcase, right? Um, right. This book, this book has has sort of like some sort of way out as its MacGuffin, like a way out of this system. Oh, and it, it's almost like he can't leave Poisonville, right? He has to live there, and. And uh and thinking about like all the uh the connections, uh one of the ones that you know, people if you go to the akira Kurosawa uh, and connections with Star Wars, I, I know we're going pretty far off course here, but I wanna I wanna point <laughs> out that, that there's a movie called The Hidden Fortress, which uh oh, is right. very right, similar right. to a lot of aspects of Star Wars, you know, sort of lifted and said, Yeah, this is great, let's Recreate that the Western in outer space sort of thing, or the Western in Japan, in feudal Japan. Um, the the humor of of this book is sort of against the violence um, and the uh, the sort of endless blood pouring out, of the, the literal red harvest that he 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 <laughs> sows mm-hmm. and then reaps. Right.
3: Yeah.
1: Um, in the if you go back to the original yojimbo it is both bloody and like there is a scene that's exactly, exactly paralleled to that star Wars cantina scene where the alien gets his arm chopped off that the, the sudden brutal violence. And yet all the, uh, the comedy is, you know, all these guys who are acting brave, but actually not. And they sort of push each other back and forth in the street. Um, here it's it's even harder so it's it's almost like we've become soft from the days when this was you know we now think of it as a genre right that it's uh it's just sort of conventions and stuff like that but i think all the drinking that's going on in here <laughs> is actually uh sort of like that's what you do when you can't escape right you, you try to escape right. by right. by drinking it away because you can't escape the reality that's surrounding you. so when this you've got this femme fatale who's you know you if you' if you're, if you're not half in the bag <laughs> and when you meet her you say you know I don't understand why everybody's fighting over this lady and what what she's holding over them. Um, but she she's why does she want all that money? Just more alcohol like it's this book is really odd when you start thinking about it.
2: Well, and also it makes me think about, talk about a not very likely hero or, you know, he's not a hero, but our protagonist, he makes the point, he's five, six, Mm -hmm. he weighs 195 pounds, some of it fat, but not all of it says. And so
1: he's always judging everybody's height to see if he can take them. Right. right. Right.
2: Because you forget that because you're thinking of a hero as a, a commanding figure and then he continually is yanking you back to reality by right. going my five six i leaned my 195 pounds into this i did mm-hmm. this this guy was super tall this guy was about you know was of course a couple inches taller than me and that's where you're kind of go, oh right mm-hmm. right you're very unromantic looking
4: mm-hmm. because he's also ugly oh, um, yeah. i don't know if they say that they must say that in this book but he is described as ugly a lot i kind of figure he's like an edward g robinson kind oh, of guy. oh
2: that would be a good like
5: yeah, mm-hmm.
3: oh yeah, I'm
1: the continental
3: See, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and he's middle aged, mm-hmm. right? <clears throat> which, which also makes that feel very modern. It's like he's not the 13 to 19 year old protagonist you get in a lot of movies. He's 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 he right. he he's, 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 it's it's not the it's not the it's not the Years, it's the mileage. He's seen a lot of mileage.
1: (laughs) Yeah,
3: yeah, and feels that way.
1: What's that line from? That's from. That's That's from uh, Blade Runner. uh, Indiana?
3: No, it's from Indiana Jones. Okay, yeah, yeah,
1: it's some sort of. uh, Harrison Ford movie, isn't it? Yeah.
3: Yes, it's some sort of Harrison Ford movie. That's not Blade Runner, Jesse. I know
1: (laughs) they exist. Actually, but but the thing is, is Blade Runner is is kind of. um, I mean, the the look of it, right, and the corruption um is it's less i mean that's one of the things that's in in the in the book or not in that's in the movie that's not in the book right the, the the look and the corruption right the sense that uh that that line delivered by the guy who's also in blood simple uh mm-hmm.
5: um
1: who, who's the movie movie folks help me out here who's the actor who plays um the boss in uh, blade runner the cop boss he's also in blood simple
2: oh yeah edward james Olmos, maybe
1: no no um i don't know i'm thinking says, the wrong if you're not, class, I and I, I just i just oh, i was thinking of the detective he says if you're not cop you're oh. little people you know the actor i mean um it's funny because i just i just tweeted out a little lego scene uh that uses that
4: he <laughs> Emmett, right. e. Emmett walsh yeah Emmett at walsh yeah walsh.
1: him right he's in both right he's he's that sense of the corrupt cop right the hat, he's not fully shaven his office is a mess right and he's sending this guy out on a job threatening him if you don't do the job right you're and it turns out that he's not even a boss right That well that's that's for another story but that sense of <laughs> <that> the, <laughs> the corruption like that, that whole movie has this sense of you know the, the city's screwed um everybody's and, and there is even that visit to the big boss up in the tower right who you're sort of working for
2: Yeah there's no hope in that movie I mean you know that movie is very bleak I guess you would say And the
1: femme fatale mm-hmm. turns out to be a robot <laughs> yeah. So uh, but the, she the, does
2: the, know how to keep everything snapped up so uh, you know
1: <laughs> Yeah that's uh, they clean <laughs> it up they admiring. clean it up real good but um, that's the thing is, the, if you go back to the original, like the the books, like James M. Cain's, uh, you know, the the story uh, with the postman always rings twice, which the title also nobody ever explains properly. I, I can't <laughs> figure out why it's called that. Anyways, that that great novel and that, I mean, they, no matter as soon as you put it on film, every everybody comes a lot more beautiful, even if they're not even supposed right. to be beautiful, because you you just want to see people with their hair combed and, and even if their hair is un- uncombed it's it's still, you know, it's positioned right? so that you, they, they get the best lighting but in, in the books it's their lipsticks really greasy and dirty like, and, and the people are horrible like just horrible human beings and yet you're compelled and you can't stop because they're so, compelled and they can't stop so
2: all these people are, are horrible the town's horrible the guy who cleans them up is personally motivated in not a great way so and the writing is great, but so yeah. Rose is the one who picked the book. Why did you pick the book? <laughs> I Why love it. you book. want to talk about it.
4: This is my favorite Hammett book. It's not as well constructed as the Maltese Falcon,
5: right?
4: Um, like technically, the Maltese Falcon is a better book, but um, I love the way Red Harvest is written. I love the fact that it's not one big long mystery. It's really more about cleaning up the town. I love the Continental Op as a character. Um, I just think. Why?
2: Why do you, why do you love him as a character?
4: I like him because he is unrelenting. This is a guy who has no, you know, in the novel, everyone has something they care about and he uses that against them. That's what he's using to tear the town apart. The sheriff has his brother, his dead brother, uh, El Hugh has his want, his desire to control the town. Dinah Brand has her love of money. This, you know, the she's controlling this guy, Dan Rolfe, or whatever yeah. who loves her. Like all these people care about something, and he doesn't. He cares about nothing. He has he has no family. He has no ambitions, really. You don't even really feel like if he got fired from the Continental Detective <laughs> Agency, he yeah. would be at a loss. Maybe he would. But that doesn't stop him from doing what he's doing. This is a guy who has his code, only his code, which is not like anyone else's code. It's not determined by law. It's not mm-hmm. determined by moral conventions. Um, it's kind of a weird mishmash of both. And he uh, he's willing to do whatever he thinks is right. And this is a situation that's unusual for him. In the book, in the stories, the short stories, um, it's always much more of the simple case. And he is acting according to his code, but it's never challenged in this way. Mm -hmm. He's uh, put in a position where he actually cares about something. And it's not something most of us would normally care about, but (laughs) he cares about it. And he's... um, That speech, the blood simple speech he gives Mm -hmm. um, about how he's gone blood simple like the natives, he's clearly very disturbed by what's happened to him, and yet he can't stop it. And that's, you know, for all that it's not that personal, that is the most personal thing we ever hear from the Continental Op. That is the most vulnerable he ever gets. And he's doing it in front of a woman who's corrupt and who doesn't really care about him, but he doesn't have anyone else. He has no one else to talk to. He has no one that's going to understand this. And that's Except
1: for us dear readers.
4: Yes. Yeah,
1: right. mm-hmm. um, Thank goodness.
4: And you know, he's talking about the joy he's taking in seeing these people kill themselves or get them or, um other people or get themselves killed. And he talks about the fact that that disturbs him. But at the same time, he remembers who all of them are. When he says a dozen people have been killed, he lists them. He remembers who they all are. So this is... He's just an odd mixture of apathetic and amoral and conscientious. I think he's a really unusual hero.
1: Yeah, definitely. Rose, Mm
3: -hmm. I'm I'm looking at the uh, Wikipedia page for the Continental Op. So this... So, Red Harvest is really towards the end of his career? hmm So, there's not much... So, how is he really different here than, say, the earlier story, since you've read a lot more of these than anybody else here?
4: Well, I don't know that he is that... I mean, other than showing him being a little more vulnerable. You know, H- Hammett's career was so short. He wrote so much in such a short amount of time. Uh, the Continental Op is remarkably consistent. Um, if you look at the, um, his progression of heroes, because his heroes are very similar to one another. There's are small differences, but not, you know, I mean, in a sense, his heroes progress more than the individual heroes do. We start off with someone like the Continental Op, who is, um there he you know at heart he is a detective he will always be a detective that's what he's defined as um sam spade is an independent detective he's got his partner he's got his secretary who he gets along with he has more of a personal connection with people around him and by the end we get uh the thin man all right who's extraordinarily human he, yes, he lo- is love he loves his wife. He's willing to do things for her. He's got that tough guy thing. But he's not he's the most human of all of his characters.
2: And yet still in many ways not very likable. You're right. I hadn't thought about that. Um, he is he is the most human and but what makes him What made me able to take him when I recently reread The Thin Man was his wife. Mm -hmm. She's the softening agent because he will let her influence him on a lot of things. He still is him.
4: Yeah. And actually, The Glass Key also, the hero is not a detective. He's um, connected to a politician. um, But he is also... Um, you know what, it's funny, actually, in some ways he's more human than the thin man. He's, he doesn't have a significant other or anything like that. Um, he's friends with the guy he's working with. He does stuff out of friendship. Oh, okay. Um, and he's the one who will have the most moral qualms over anything he does.
2: Was that the last book he wrote though?
4: I don't know. It was either the thin man or the glass key. I'm
0: looking at the list here and the glass key came before the thin man. Okay. Okay. Yeah, um, he wrote five novels. It says Red Harvest, The Dane Curse, The Maltese Falcon, The Glass Key, and then The Thin Man.
2: Well, and The Thin Man is not inhuman it, because mm-hmm. he because otherwise his wife wouldn't love him. But he always kind of has a tendency I feel to kind of revert to that tough guy you know, um, I'm going to sit here and drink while I think about this thing, kind of more like Sam Spade would do in the middle of the night. And his wife is the one who makes him care about stuff more to look into it and all this kind of thing Mm -hmm. and rescue people.
4: Yeah. Um, So Hammett's an interesting writer. He shows range, but not an extraordinary amount of range. He's a focus. He's very genre focused. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it's interesting to see his heroes progress over his career.
1: I want to read this. Very interesting. Very. This is interesting. from chapter one. Um, it, it it reminds me, like, I, we're obviously not going to experience exactly the same things that were happening at the time, but we're in a, another sort of position where, you know, the wealthy uh, people who own everything are growing again. Uh, listen to this. For 40 years, old Elihu Wilson had owned Personville heart, soul, skin, and guts. He was the president and majority stockholder of the Personville Mining Corporation, ditto of the First National Bank, owner of the Morning Herald and Evening Herald, the city's only newspapers, and at least part owner of nearly every other enterprise of any importance. Along with these pieces of property, he owned a United States senator, a couple of representatives, (laughs) the governor, the mayor, and most of the state legislature. (laughs) That's like Yeah, Um, and this is the guy he's working for. And this is the guy who he's actually attacking in a certain sense, right?
2: Mm -hmm. We kind of feel like he really is staying true in a lot of ways to his first client who he never got to talk to. That's right. Because he's solving his murder, he's taking care of other things. He finds out that the father was using the son in a way that the son didn't realize. And so... He's sticking up for him. He doesn't like the father, and the son wouldn't have liked the father either. You know, if he'd have found out everything he was doing. That's part of the information Dinah Brand had, was, look what your father's got his fingers in. And so, in that way, he is remaining quite consistent. It's just not, he doesn't really ever think about that. He just takes off and goes in all these directions.
1: I I'm, I, I can't say I like it any more. Any anywhere close to where i like maltese falcon but i know yeah i think that that's to do with the fact that maltese falcon's plot is so um perfect in a certain sense Mm -hmm. the way it's revealed it feels a lot tighter i i know that that uh you know it's it's probably it's similar length right i mean there maybe this one's an hour shorter um
4: yeah i think it's about the same length
1: yeah but uh, it, it, when when a down, I think I mean the uh, the reason that they get rid of all there's instead of having all the different powers running the town and all you know I think just having the two what was the line somebody almost quoted it this m- when we started uh playing both sides against the middle right that oh, right that I mean that's what this is sort of what it is, except there's four sides and it's a bit too complex. Um, it takes a little bit too long in, in doing what it's doing, and in you know in film you can really cut things down by just giving a few glances here and there and a little bit of sympathy, uh, sympathetic looks and um, and and one of the things that ruins uh, Paul I can't I I couldn't get through this the. The movie you watched, The Last Man Standing. Last Man Standing? One of the things that ruins it, I mean, uh, there's a number of things that sort of make it a bad movie in a certain sense. The fact that it feels like... Like, when you watch A Fistful of Dollars, um, the music is so good. Um, When you watch the original uh, Yojimbo, the music is so good. I don't remember the music at all from Last Man Standing. And it's so important for both of those other films. Um, that it, it sort of starts and ends the violence, right? You know, it goes from light comedy to, like, brutal, you know, manslaying um, in, in an instant. And then what ruins The, the Last Man Standing is it, it does the conventional uh, narration that we normally associate with this sort of hard-boiled detective, you know, style book. Um, Bruce Willis comes over and does a voiceover telling us all the things we don't need to know in the same way that um that uh, our protagonist in um, blade runner does in the original cut right where he's narrating all these things we don't really need to know i don't know how i felt about him manhandling my yeah, girl like jesus know. we we can see it on your face man don't tell us
2: But that just means that that narration isn't particularly skillfully done or from the right angle. I like the original cut of Blade Runner and that narration, so again, we disagree. But um, I would say you watch Sunset Boulevard, and that has got the voiceover from the omniscient viewer who's died, Mm -hmm. who's looking back as we're seeing things going on, and he's telling you something that's accenting and enhancing what you're experiencing.
1: Or even better, in Double Indemnity, where he's narrating it into mm-hmm. right. yeah. it. Equally it, good, right, equally good. It may be the best film of that genre ever, right? It's just so yeah. beautiful, and so beautifully composed. Yeah. Sunset Boulevard, obviously a great film as well, but yeah, that sense I, of the I dirty can't and pick gritty... not
3: between the two. It's so yeah. good.
1: Um, not, and, all, yeah. not
3: all narration, Jesse. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well... <laughs> You know, we don't need it. When we, we, the thing is, is of course we need it in the book, and that's arguably the best part about the book is just feeling the way uh, he reacts to everything. You know, uh, whenever something happens or whenever somebody pokes their face into the into the story, the description of of how it happens is is more delightful than what's happening in any in any real sense. Um, uh, uh, any other sense of it, uh, uh, like I don't really care who's who's doing what, as long as they keep doing it because I <laughs> I'm enjoying the way he's describing, um, you know, my foot. He says I stepped into the room the way my foot would, or something like that. He's like very <laughs> very slick little like um, plays on words, and and it's it's delightful, and then it's contrasted against the sort of the yeah the buckets of blood that are pouring out of each doorway um as he goes through them or uh, comes out of them and uh, it's um it's funny because i i do think that it shouldn't be adapted to film ever again because uh, both yojimbo and fistful of dollars do such a good job of it um but i also don't think Maltese falcon should be adapted again and it's it it was perfect as a book and perfect as a movie
4: I don't know. Well, and I think that the Red Harvest is flawed enough narratively that it's a difficult... I mean, it would be difficult to faithfully adapt it.
1: Yeah, no, it shouldn't be faithfully adapted because...
4: Yeah, and this also... Yeah, I mean, it suffers from being four short stories glued together, basically. But I I will say that um, anyone who likes the Continental Op should read the short stories because they're much more focused... Uh, they're much more just your regular detective stories, but well conceived, well written, the way Hammett does, um, um, and really well done. The Dane Curse not not so much, not a great book,
0: but. You I, like so to are the, they collected in a book that's just called the Continental Op stories or something like that?
4: There's yeah, you a, a find bunch of them? them.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah. Where would one start? You know the um, names in collections, maybe?
4: Well, I mean, a lot of the collections will have, like, seven or eight of the stories in it.
0: And it doesn't matter where you grab it?
4: No. They're in. all... Okay. Um, if two stories are connected, typically they'll be in the same book. So you
2: don't okay. need to worry about that.
0: Okay. Because yeah, I am interested. This is cool. Yeah,
2: yeah, I guess since they're not about him, he he's showing no progression as a character. Yes. And you don't know about his life, so it doesn't matter what order you read them in because they're just his adventures exactly. his detective stories is what you're saying. So, yeah. yeah. Mm. So it'd be like getting the black mask every month. You know? Yeah. What, what am I seeing now? Who knows? Mm-hmm.
1: I think we're pretty much done.
2: I think so. Mm-hmm.
1: Cool. I would
4: also like to say oh, the audiobook oh, for this. Right. Very yeah. good. <coughs> it is
1: Richard if anyone wants to
4: listen to it. Richard yeah. Peron's yeah.
1: Terrific. Yeah. I
2: can never make it all the way through because the story itself is so brutal, but I love the narration. Mm hmm yeah
1: cool. um, I should point out that Richard Ferone, uh also narrated uh, a whole bunch of Lawrence block books he's um, right. he's really terrific at first-person uh, narration yeah. you know describing
4: run,
1: yeah
4: oh he's also done some Jane some McCain
1: books right uh, James M Kane that'd be cool I don't know about that um, what, what he's so great about is he he's really conspiratorial you know like I walked into the blah blah blah, and you know, like he's he's sort of whispering it to you almost, and it feels like um, you're right there with him, or you know, it's in confidence over a over a cup of coffee in a one of those um, hopper paintings.
0: This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.
3: You have no. to use your memory. No, but, but I can use my memory, Julie. Thank you very much. <laughs> but how can I? How, how can I? How can I use my memory to describe ep- the beautiful people dressed words. up? With words, words my friend. Words. Use your words centuries. That's right. I Ah, use your words, not d- your fists. Ooh, I'm not using my fists.
1: You're shaking I, I, your fists
3: at the gods. Well, yeah, but that's 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 just every day. <laughs> <laughs>